Father, we come before you tonight and we pray, Lord, that as we look into your word, that you would show us ourselves, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see our need for redemption, the work that you want to do in our hearts and in our lives. And we pray, Lord, most importantly, that you would give us courage to move forward and to learn to walk in the paths that you've told us to walk in. We ask that you would um, that you would give us humble hearts and that you would reveal much to us out of your word tonight. And we give you all glory and honor in the name of our Messiah, Yeshua. Amen. So for those that don't know, I just want to let you know that we are recording the Bible study. And this is also to help those that are involved in the nursery care here on Wednesday night so that they can um, have a chance to hear this and be uh, built up also in the word. And so we'd like to encourage sorry, <laughs> encourage extra noise that we can edit out of the message in a sense. That's fine. Tonight I called tonight's message serving <clears throat> searching for leaven of the of, of both the scribes and Pharisees in our own lives. And so um, we'd like to begin by reading Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. And Anya, can I ask you to read for us? Yes, as soon as I get there. That's fine. Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Then Yeshua spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe, that observe, and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move with them, or with, will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They may make their fill phylacteries broad and enlarge the and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by a man Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is for one is your teacher, the, the Messiah, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he is he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Messiah. But he who is greatest among you shall bear your spirit. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, what, one through that, 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 was that was it, in verses 1 through 12. Okay. So, <clears throat> as we get into this portion, um, there's some stuff that, there's a lot here that's in here. But I first want to start with just some of the, a little bit of review from last week, because that does fit in. And last week we talked about Messiah operating in the four offices, and I'll put them back up here again, and they're in your notes. There's king, there's priest, there's prophet, and teacher. And each of these offices was given authority to be able to um, have a purpose 
in being able to do the things that God was calling them to do. Now, obviously, each office was anointed to be able to function by the Spirit and to function also by the anointing of what, the, what God was calling them to do. But it's important to understand that each part, part with that anointing also came the responsibility and the requirement to be a leader and to have God's authority on you. Now, authority is something very important to God because God doesn't Im- imply authority on everyone the same way he does on these particular offices. And as we talked about prophet last week, I want to talk about some of the offices in which prophets, some of the things that were required or some of the things that prophets were asked to do as they were coming about to to uh, do their ministry. So some of these are pretty basic and some of these might be more um, harder to get our arms around as we look at them. But first of all, one of the basic things the pro- a prophet did was they declared the word of God. Now many times that meant that they were declaring not only a word that God had given them specifically to declare, but they would also declare things that would be right out of the scriptures that we can read today. They would say things about how people were to live as God had directed them, like he did in the days of Moses, it might say. Or how he declared people to live according to the Torah. And he would also give them special words where he would say, Thus says the Lord, go and tell so-and-so that this is what's going to happen. I know, I know your ways, I know how you've walked, and I know how you're, you've done good things, or how you've done bad things. And so that's the kind of word that God would have his prophets declare. Another thing they would do is they would show themselves as examples to the people. And this could be taken in a lot of various senses and ways. But I I can think of some, and I might ask you, can you think of any things that the prophets were told to do? Maybe not a spectacular miracle, because I have that under the next part, that they would also show expressions of God's power. And we see that we see that with someone like Elijah, who had called down the fire from heaven on the altar to, to set the sacrifice ablaze. But I'm also thinking about some of the other things that God asked prophets to do as an example to the people. Can anybody think of an example where God said, I want you to do this so that the people will understand my heart on this matter? Ezekiel, okay. Who had to, um, I'm trying to think if he was the one, who had to turn on his side, what, he had to do some gross things. Yes, it's very, yes, very graphic and disgusting. God said you're to go and lay in the manure. Yeah. Or in, or in uh, dung, I believe, as yeah. the King James puts it. Yeah. He was supposed to lay down in excrement for this many days mm-hmm. on his side, and then after a while he was to turn and lay some more days on the other side. And, and there were some other examples. Uh, what about Hosea? What did God ask Hosea to do? Uh, consult with um, uh, Consort Mary. There's nothing delicate about it. <laughs> <laughs> prostitute. Go and marry a prostitute. And this was to be an example to show Israel what they were being like. And And... I mean, we can get 
it gets pretty graphic sometimes, some of the things that God would tell people to do. Like he told Isaiah, walk around naked. Walk around naked so that people will understand how they stand before me. And that one day they will act. They will be naked as you are naked because they are already spiritually this way. And so a lot of times God would use prophets to do things like this to get people's attention, to stand up and to listen. And so many times prophets had the idea of being an example to the people. Now last week we talked specifically how prophets were also called to give an account to authorities. We see that as early as as, uh, Joseph and Moses, that they went before Pharaoh and they had to tell Pharaoh about dreams. They had to tell Pharaoh the word of God as Moses did. And we see that even as going as far as Daniel and even Malachi, how they were sent to authorities and given the message to give to that authority, whether it was Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar or Daniel and uh, Belshazzar or Daniel and Darius. There, he was given these uh, times that he had to go before an authority and explain dreams, explain writing on the wall, explain visions that God was giving to them. We also see that Malachi, in the last book of the Tanakh, or in the Old Testament, in the, in the Christian Bible, that Malachi was sent to rebuke who? What authority was he asked to rebuke? Does anybody remember? The priests. The priests. The priests, because the priests had authority over the worship, authority over the sacrifices, and Malachi is sent to give them a harsh word. This week's Torah, the additional reading to the Torah portion, comes from Malachi chapter 3, and how Malachi tells the priests how they're out of line, and some of the things that they're doing wrong within the worship to God. Just a, just a note for those that you don't know. Also, prophets were were to bring the message of repentance. That was probably one of the hardest things they had to do, was go and tell people where they were going in the wrong way. And tell them, God loves you, but you're going this way, and you're going to bring about God's judgment. If you don't turn around and start going the other way. And it was a very sobering thing that prophets were to do. And not only that, but we see that many times also they would be saying, because you refuse to repent, because you won't turn, this is the judgment that God is going to bring on you. And each of these particular things Yeshua does also in his ministry. He shows himself as an example. He shows himself as someone who's explaining future implications of judgment. We see that he brings forth the message of repentance Over and over again. And in this chapter, that's probably what we're going to focus on most is Yeshua bringing a message of repentance. A message of repentance to both the scribes and Pharisees, and not just to them, but also the people that were following their teachings. Because the Pharisees didn't just exist in a vacuum. They affected the lives of lots of people. They had a very strong influence on what was taking place in both the synagogue and in the temple. And people have to understand that some of the things maybe they were holding on to had to change. And so we see here right away in verse 1, 
that Yeshua is addressing the whole crowd. And I want to suggest to you this first can say quite a bit because if you haven't remembered earlier in our study of Matthew, at Passover, Jerusalem was quite packed. There could be, in some cases, up to a million people in the city of Jerusalem during Passover. A lot of people came in to the pilgrimage feasts. And at Passover, Josephus tells us that there was almost a million people there. A million people that would come to, to partake in the Passover, to be a part of the celebration. So when Yeshua starts to make a lot of these statements very openly within the temple setting, there's a lot of people, a lot of people who are hearing what he has to say. And I want to suggest to you, it wasn't just unpopular words for the Pharisees and scribes, but there was probably some unpopular words that they were going to embrace as well. And it's not easy to bring a message of telling people, this is where folks are going wrong. And I want to, I want to start by first saying overview of this passage is the Pharisees get a bad rap. The Pharisees get a pretty bad rap overall in what they're, what's thought of them, what's taught about them, to the point now that when you look up the word Pharisee in a dictionary, you see the word hypocrite. And it's an unfortunate thing because not all Pharisees were quote-unquote hypocrites. Not all Pharisees were sinners of these sins that are expressed here in this whole chapter of Matthew 23. And part of the thing a lot of folks sometimes park on, especially our brothers in the church, they look at this passage as not only is Yeshua speaking against the Pharisees, he's also speaking against the Torah and against Jewish people in general and Jewish customs. And so it's important to challenge that. So I brought tonight, and if those want to see it, there's a... Uh, there was an article that I took from the, the website Bridges for Peace. I thought it had a lot of good information about the Pharisees and learning to see the Pharisees in the balance of things. Understanding Yeshua's view of the Pharisees. Understanding what it was about. I wish I could have put it in everyone's notes, but we have three copies. And if you want to circulate them, um, Rabbi David had made and prepared them that way. But there's a lot of good information that you can attain just on some basics about who were the Pharisees. What did they believe? Why did why does Yeshua why is in some ways some of Yeshua's viewpoints very similar to the Pharisees? And most importantly, we have to remember there was a Pharisee who was a big time believer. Does anyone know who I'm talking about? Not just Nicodemus. Rav Shaul. Or Rabbi Paul. He was a big time Pharisee. Now, I want to ask you, did he ever stop being a Pharisee? Did the scriptures ever say Paul decided that Phariseeism wasn't for him and he decided that that was it? And so I want to suggest to you that Paul never stopped being a Pharisee even though he became a believer in Messiah. In fact, many Pharisees probably became believers too in Messiah. It does say so. They became very much desiring to know more about this Jewish Messiah 
this rabbi and teacher named Yeshua from Nazareth. And so it's important to not just look at this in that sense, but to also understand when we look at this passage, we're looking at criticism by Jews to Jews. And it's not just a criticism that's being said in, in a context of probably learning to understand that this particular criticism just doesn't come in a vacuum. It's saying things that in many ways also Pharisees said about themselves. They had their own issues with their own group and even said some of those things. We have examples of a man named uh, Ben Zitzit HaKesef who it says his zitzio were so long that they actually were carried upon pillows. Pillows! And, I mean, there's... They look at this and say, here was someone who did make his piety for a show. For a show. And so, I'm going to start by just... Um, by talking about, first of all, that those who are in authority have been given the authority by God. And that God, Yeshua, begins this passage by confirming that authority. He first starts by saying how this authority has come about because God established it. And I'm going to look at a couple passages in the Torah that point to this. Specifically Deuteronomy 16 and Exodus chapter 18. Both of these passages talk about how God's desire was not that one person should lead, but that there was to be a group of leaders that were to go about and do things. So let's look at these two passages. Um, Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. We'll start with that one. And then if someone else would turn to Exodus chapter 18, and we'll look at verses 13 through 23, a much lengthier passage but it also an important one about the election of authority and the election of leaders. Because God, God is the one who establishes leaders. God is the one that appoints people. He has the power to do this. And as far back as we see, as early as Moses, God is establishing the authority in place there. So Deuteronomy 16, 8 through, 18 through 20. Who can I get to read for that? I've got it. Okay. Judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, throughout thy tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. Thou shalt not rest judgment. Thou shalt not, res thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift, nor a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous, that which is altogether just shalt thou follow, that thou mayest live and inherit the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now do you notice that last part about inheriting and taking the land? Notice that that's put at the end. And I, no I noticed that for a couple of reasons because I think one of the things that is being emphasized here is the need for leaders and judges and officers was so that they would get to that point of the land. It wasn't something that they were wait, going to wait to do. It was to be something that would be established in their gates early on, even before they got to the land. And it's something that God even requires now, is that 
judges and officers be established to execute authority. And what was the main purpose of that? It's, it's mentioned here two times. To pursue justice. The pursuit of justice. That God wanted his people to have justice in all their dealings. And it also talks about how in the midst of appointing people, that there always be this temptation to have favoritism. That there would be a bribe maybe put forth at some time to one person so that people would look a different way about this person or a different way about that person. In other passages, we see how the, the ordinance of judgment are given at times and saying, don't look down on the poor person because he's poor. Don't look down on the rich person or don't look better on the rich person because he's rich. But you're to judge with righteous judgment like it talks about in Exodus chapter 23. Now earlier in Exodus we see also a practical side for leaders. Very important passage here. Exodus 18 verses 13 through 23. Who can I get to read that? Okay. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and they stood around Moses from morning to evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What's this you're doing to the people? Why sit by yourself alone, with all the people standing around from morning to evening? Moses answered his father-in-law, It's because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have an issue, it comes to me. And I judge between a man and his neighbor, so I make them understand God's statutes and his laws. But Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You will surely wear yourself out, as well as these people who are with you, because the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone by yourself. Now listen to my voice. I will give you advice, and may God be with you. You represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. Enlighten them as to the statutes and the laws, and show them the way by which they must walk and the work they must do. But you should seek out capable men out of all the people, men who fear God, men of truth, who hate bribery. Appoint them to be rulers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, fifties, and tens. Let them judge the people all the time. Then let every major case be brought to you, but every minor case they can judge for themselves. Make it easier for yourself as they bear the burden with you. If you do this thing as God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people go to their places in Shalom. So part of what we're trying to picture here is that leadership was to be plural, a plurality. What were some of the practical reasons that are mentioned in this passage? Why did they need a group of leaders instead of one? One person couldn't do it all. Okay. One can't do it all. What else? What else? Well, part of this is the kingdom principle. The kingdom of God is to expand. 
And where we have expansion and growth, part of the, what we have then is blessing. And if it stays stagnant, that's not good for anyone. So not only do we need not one person to do it all, but we also need this concept of expansion and growth. God's kingdom has to expand. It's a basic principle. Things have to grow and multiply. If they don't, then it's not really blessed of God. Not only that, part of the thing is people share the load. Now this is a concept I know we know here at Yeshuatzion. What happens when people don't share the load? You have 2080, which which does everyone know the 2080 principle? That 20 percent of the people do 80 percent of the work, and what ends up happening is those 20 get worn out. They get worn out. They get embittered. They get tired, and eventually they just get used up. They can't do it anymore. And part of God's plan is he wants to see everyone share what takes place. Everyone to take a share in it. When we all have a share in something, what does that end up doing for us? Well, does anyone remember what we've talked about in the courses on unity that we've had recently? Why does everyone need to be a part of things? says, uh, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Yeshua. Yes. In Galatians 6. It's part of God's rule. It's part of God's rule, but, but also, it's part of how we all grow together. It's how we all live together and how we all share together. If we don't all serve in one way or another, then, in a sense, our whole body is our whole body isn't being used as effectively as it can be used. It's always going to end up being short on one end. And part of the problem that happens is, is folks have to have a vested interest in it. They have to desire that ownership of it. They have to desire that willingness to work in it. And work is meant for everyone, not just for the leaders not just for the people who are ministering, but we're all to be a part of the work that takes place. That way we all grow together, we all have a vested interest. Doesn't it sort of build a sense of community? It does build a sense of community. We don't have a sense of community when only some people do the work. We have a, they, they may have a sense of knowing what's, what the group needs, but not everyone else does. And so part of what we see here in this passage, just to kind of get the beginnings of it, to tease some of this stuff out, God has a purpose in anointing people to be leaders and giving them authority. And I think it's important that we start at that point first because if we don't understand that God has lifted these people up, then when we look at the fact that people that buck against that authority or they struggle with that authority... That who are they really struggling against? Are they just struggling against people? 
they're struggling against God. And so part of the thing is that we have to look at in our looking at this portion is that God has established authority. And at the end of the day, we have to learn to understand that. God is first and foremost at the top. God is in authority. We say that. Who al say? God is on the throne. But we have to actually believe that and take that into our, into our thinking when it comes to authority. And that's what I want to suggest here even with Yeshua. Yeshua is saying that, that these people that we're going to read all these horrible things about in this chapter, first and foremost, they are under God's authority. And it first starts with God is at rule. God rules. Like it says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything on it. God is the first one. This is a sanity saver for a lot of us. If we don't see that God is ultimately in control of things, even that God appoints leaders, because that's the second point. God appoints leaders. Even President Obama. Yes. God appoints all leaders and authorities. And even though they are flawed and human and make mistakes, they're still appointed by God. We still have to see that, I mean, and, and if anything, not only has God appointed them, but God has never lost control. Even in his appointment of leaders, no matter how ugly things get with leaders, he is still in control. He is still in control. And even though leaders make mistakes and have their bad hair days like all the rest of us, it's important to understand that God is the one who's appointed them there to be ruling and reigning in the midst of those things, whether we like it or not. This is God's authority. Mike, it's interesting that uh, people who have a, uh, an anti-pharisaical uh, bias read this to say that the uh, <coughs> scribes and Pharisees uh, seated themselves uh, to see the Moses. In other words, God had nothing to do with it. Um, and the, the problem... Uh, one of the problems with that is that Yeshua respected the authority of the Pharisees every time he went to the synagogue. Uh, he didn't march in and say, Thus saith the Lord, but he was depending on the Pharisees who ruled the synagogue to give him permission to come and speak. That's absolutely right. <coughs> That's absolutely right. And people have to understand that God, he's the one that appoints leaders. And we, we have a responsibility to see that God is at work in those leaders too. God is at work in them and he's doing things through them. We have to see that God is much bigger than the situation that we find ourselves in when we, when we look at leaders. And I think what's hard to do in this passage is to learn to focus on the sin and not the sinner. Because we all can look at this passage and come away from it 
having a bad taste in our mouth of the people and lose fact of the matter of the sin can still be at work in us. The sin can still be active in our own lives. The very things that we see wrong with the folks here. In other words, they don't have a monopoly on hypocrisy and pride and legalism. These are things we can see in our own lives if we're willing to look for them. These are things that God wants us to see in our own selves. Because what God is really against is the sin. Not against the person doing the sin. He's never against a person. God desires everyone to come back to that part of change and to repent. We all have to be willing to look and say, Do, are some of these things in me as well? Um, are, there, are they at work in my life? Do I come across hypocritical? Do I, you know, do I have the same attitudes when I look at authority? Do I have the same attitudes about things that they have? And so we have to understand that God is the establisher of all authority. And we can have the mentality like a lot of people because it's hard for us to look at authorities. I mean, right now authorities are getting a pretty bad rap in the news, especially police officers in the last year, and I'm sure among others there's always a scandal out. But the fact is, God establishes all the authorities, whether it's within our government, whether it's in our church, whether it's in our own life as parents, and our, our authority as a parent in our child's life. These are the facts that God establishes, and He's the one that has established these authorities with a purpose and a reason. And in many cases today, when we don't like the authority, what do we just do? Especially if we don't like religious authority. Well, we just leave. That's, that's the typical stance of most believers today. I don't like pastor so-and-so. I don't like rabbi so-and-so. I'm going to go to another congregation. I'm going to go somewhere else. And in the end, I want to tell you, that doesn't just hurt. That idea, that consumerism mentality doesn't just hurt us. It hurts the congregations we leave. It hurts the leaders we leave. There's a rippling effect when we just up and choose to depart instead of dig in. And I think that's the first application I want to make in this is that, because it's important that we apply what we learn is that we persevere where God calls us. We persevere where we are called. And it's something that God does within us. And part of the purpose for persevering is it does things for our character. And I want to look at a couple passages that specifically address this issue. Because many times it's our character that's being worked on. Not just our character, but also the people that we're having a hard time with as well. God wants to work things in the midst of our character. So Romans chapter 5 and James chapter 1. Those were the two passages I wanted to look at. Because it's important to persevere in the midst of tough times. And not just be ready to head for the door 
when the first sign of trouble or the first sign of problems. Romans chapter 5 and verses 3 through 6. In James chapter 1 verses 2 through 5. Do I have a reader for Romans chapter 5? Okay. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given it to us, but who was given to us. For when we were still without strength in due time, so, what is this passage telling us? Do, do you see the, the pattern that comes forth? First, it starts with trials. And from trials, we get perseverance. And then what after perseverance? Character. And after character... Hope. Has anyone here ever been without hope? Yes. It's a tough place to be. Mm. Tough place to be when you have no hope. So, it's kind of funny, but I never thought from a trial you'd get to hope. But that's kind of the way it sometimes works. We, from trial, we learn to persevere, whether it's losing a job or going through a rough time in our own life of maybe having dryness. Sometimes we get in those periods of dryness where we feel like we're not hearing from the Lord. Or maybe we feel like we're not getting what we thought we had with the Lord. Maybe we had a different expectation. Like we talked about last week, how our expectation, what we expected is not what we find ourselves at. And somehow God helps us persevere through that. It's not always a, a, a pretty process but from that perseverance, we really find out what kind of character we are. What kind of character we are. In fact, in one of the recent things I read about mourning, which I thought was very interesting, a lot of times what happens in the midst of grieving and mourning, the true character of a man is brought out, is what it said. How you react to a grief in your life or mourning, the loss of someone in your life, whether it's a parent or a spouse or a child, a lot of times God will bring out the real character of who you are in the midst of that loss. And then comes the hope. Because once character in your life is worked on, God can infuse the hope that needs to be there. And hope is a powerful thing. I don't think we always realize how powerful hope is. Lately when people come to me for prayer, I notice sometimes the main thing that they need to pray for is that God would renew their hope. Because it's not that their situation is at the point of no return, but many times their attitude is at the place of no return. That they feel that God is not doing anything, or God is not moving at the pace that I thought He would move, or that I expected Him to move. And now I need to turn that page and get to that place of hope. And we all go through that. We all go through those times where... We feel hopeless. 
And we don't know how to hold on or wait on the Lord. Because part of the biblical side of hope is that side of being patient on the Lord. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, I think, or 5, I think it was. You want to go to 6? I'm okay with that. Whoever's going to read. James 1, 2 through 6. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Verse 6-2? If you want to, sure. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. So here we start again with trials. And with those trials, it says we should have joy. Now, I don't know how many people are like, okay, I'm going through a rough trial. That's really not a time for me to have joy. It seems almost counterintuitive. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful trial. No, it's, it's not always easy, but the fact is, part of the work that we have to see is, this is God's opportunity. A trial is God's opportunity. And I'm going to run out of room here. But that's part of what's being James is seeing. Because every time we have a trial, we have a chance to, to have an opportunity to let God work in that trial. And I think that's the joy that James is pointing to, to us. Are we willing to say, God, this trial's from you. You want to work something good here. And through that trial, we have the perseverance that James mentions again, too. So you can see that trials and perseverance seem to go together like peas and carrots. You know? But they seem to go together. And then, what I like here is, instead of hope... James says, ask for wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom to me has been expressed in a very simple way. It's the ability to act in a given situation. Now, how you act is a totally different story. For example, wisdom wisdom can be different than knowledge, in a sense. Because knowledge can be something like, I come to the traffic light, and knowledge tells me that if the light is red, I don't cross. And if the light is green, I can cross. But wisdom is the ability to say, I'm going to find out what color the light is. I'm going to find out what is going on here, so that I know how to act. So I know what to do. Wisdom is an important piece. And I think it's here. It doesn't expressly say this, but I think it's here linked with trials because that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to knock on his door. He wants us to ask him what we're to do in this trial. Why do you have me here, Lord? What is your plan? What are you trying to work in the midst of this trial? It's interesting, Michael, that... That part of the process is that the Lord uses 
the stuff to bring us into maturity. Absolutely. Uh, maturity of completion. And that's part of that work in our character, is that maturity and that completion, that we are getting cleansed or brought to God's maturity or growth that he wants us to come to in our life through each of these trials. And part of it is learning to see, as I point out with verse 6, is to trust God for the wisdom he does give us. A lot of times we're seeking God for the wisdom, and we may get it, but we're not willing to act on it. And that's where verse 6 comes in. Don't be double-minded. Don't be double-minded. If God has shown you what to do, do it. Trust Him. Don't look to say, uh, I don't think that was you, Lord. Don't look to see if that was God or not. So, as we get into this passage of the Pharisees, we talk about hypocrisy first and foremost, and that's pretty well defined in verse 3. And I have a definition in your notes for hypocrisy also. And the Greek word the, the Greek word here is the word hypocrite. Okay? And the hypocrite was someone who was a who was an actor. It's not that there's a third group of people, which some people, if you're reading this for the first time, you say, okay, well, there's Pharisees, there's scribes, there's hypocrites. No, it's not three groups of people. He's referring to hypocrite as someone who in the Greek was an actor. Because the word hypocrite comes from the Greek. It's someone who says, do this. Who's, I'm sorry, it's someone who does something, but they actually don't mean it in their heart. In other words, their heart actions don't ma match up with their actions. What they feel in their heart doesn't match up with what they do. And, and there is a sense that we all wear a mask at times. We all, don't, we all want to be seen as the best we can in the midst of other people. But the greater point that I want to talk about is that they sit in Moses' seat. Because I think that piece about hypocrites is pretty easy to understand. But it says that they sit in the seat of Moses, and Yeshua here tells the disciples, do as they say, but not as they do. Because they don't practice what they preach. And I think it's important because I know within our own movement, there's people that don't understand this verse. They say Yeshua is actually giving the full carte blanche to Judaism. That we're to obey Judaism wholeheartedly. And there's many Messianic groups that do. They follow after everything that Judaism has to say. And I want to be very careful in saying that's not what this is saying at all. Not what Yeshua is saying either. Because Judaism does have, rabbinic Judaism specifically today, what we see Pharisaical Judaism developed into, because the Sadducees aren't around anymore since the destruction of the temple. And what we have today, what we call rabbinic Judaism, has developed over years and centuries, and it still to this day continues to evolve. 
And one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons we don't follow rabbinic Judaism, does anyone know why? <laughs> well, okay. For one thing, they're anti-Yeshua. For another, it's really it's opinions of, of men. What about opinions of men? The, uh, the, the rabbinic opinions that, that on which they base their halakha is really opinions of men. It's a lot of different men saying, I think it means this, or I think it means that. Um, they, have the, they believe that their traditions have come down straight from God as an oral Torah. And the oral Torah is, I've actually seen this. They say it's more, um, it carries more weight than the written word. In fact, they say that you cannot understand the written word unless you see it through the lens of the oral Torah, which is what the Talmud encapsulates. I mean, there are a lot of reasons. Uh, you're you're getting on the main one that I... Well, the salvation is not based on Yeshua's atonement. It's based on um, uh, repairing the book. I mean, I could go on and on. Tukun Ha'olam, yes. Yeah, yes. It's, it's what you do and so forth. And even there's the divided opinion as to what is need, but it's never based on the concept, I am a sinner. It's based on self-righteousness. It's not based on I am a sinner and Yeshua has provided atonement. And, and one of the things I'm, I'm most importantly trying to park on in all these different issues, which are very good to be brought forth, is the final authority the final authority in rabbinic Judaism is, is a lot of times the oral tradition or the oral opinion. Well, that's the oral Torah. Or the oral Torah, yes. And so when it comes down, for us, what, what is one of our final authorities? The Word of God. And, and so, in a sense, the Word of God to them if the Word of God and the oral tradition don't agree, who wins the argument? The oral Torah. The oral Torah wins the argument. Mm -hmm. They give more weight to the oral tradition or the oral Torah, the opinions of man. And that's part of what happens if you're under the authority of rabbinic Judaism. Now what Yeshua is saying here is different though. Because he's saying we're to... We're to, uh, we're to agree or we're to put ourselves under the authority of what they say. Now, when he says that, what is he saying? Well, part of everyday uh, Jewish life in the first century was governed by the Pharisees. You know, every time you went to the synagogue and, and, and uh, your, uh, how you interpreted the Torah uh, about the food or... Laws of cleanliness and so on, all that was defined by the rabbis. And so uh, Yeshua and his disciples played ball with that. For example, the Passover Seder was basically a Pharisaic, uh, uh, the, the Pharisees uh, put that together. And so Yeshua and the disciples uh, celebrated the Passover as the Pharisees instituted. And so one of the things I believe Yeshua is parking on in this, in this perspective is their interpretation. He's saying when it comes to the interpretation, they do have it right. But when it comes to the practice, they have it wrong. Oh my God. 
Yes. The other thing too is there was more than one sect of, you know, school of thought. So it's not to say there was even any one monolithic view, you know, interpretation of how things should be. So, this is true. This so, is true. So what I'm saying is, if Yeshua, to go back to the point that you were making, if Yeshua was trying to say, do as they say and not as they do, uh, you still get confused because Shammai would say one thing and Helen would say something else. You know what I'm saying? Yes. So then you'd have to say, well, which one do I listen to? So therefore, he couldn't just be saying whatever they say do. And we even can see that the disciples followed actually one of the teachings of Shammai. Did you all know that? They followed one of the teachings of Shammai. Shammai had the viewpoint when it came to Gentiles that you couldn't even go into their house. Mm -hmm. That you would be unclean. And later on in the New Testament we read Peter says, Peter says, don't you know that it's not permitted for me to even go into the house of a Gentile? Now Peter's saying that, but he's not saying that from based on God's word. Because there's nothing in scripture that tells us we can't enter the house of a Gentile. Nothing in scripture says we can't enter the house. But he's saying, Peter says this, it is not permitted that I should enter your house. He says this to Cornelius. So Peter actually, and some of the disciples, they actually, that's something that comes right out of Shammai's practice, that you weren't into, even into enter into a Gentile's house. And so, what Yeshua is parking, I believe, is the interpretation. The way they interpret Scripture, he's saying they were right on. They were right on in the way they interpreted Scripture. And so, a lot of folks still struggle with that because they still want to give... They want. I think part of it is their need to say, we want to be credible, we want to look credible in the eyes of the Jewish community. So we're going to follow their rules. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with doing it with that in mind? Just saying, we want to, we want to follow the authority so that we'll look good in the, in the eyes of the Jewish community. What's wrong with that? Well, are we going to look okay in the eyes of the Jewish community if we follow their ways? No. Why? Well, for, the Jewish community does not accept that Yeshua is the Messiah. So, so they're already not going to accept Yeshua. So that's a big stumbling block, yeah. And the more orthodox they are, the less accepting of it they are. These are real issues. I'm glad that we don't deal with them here. But I want to let you know, these are issues that are very hot in other Messianic congregations. Very hot issues. Do we, do we come under the authority of rabbinic Judaism? Do we come under the authority of the rabbis? And, and, and by the way, Michael, I, I don't believe he's giving the... Uh, Pharisees carte blanche um, as we see from, from Mark 7 Yeshua says um, agree with, with the Pharisees uh, where they agree with the word of God but where they diverge from the word of God then you obviously you obviously reject what they're saying you have to filter 
Okay. About the oral tradition, like he's telling them in verse one to three, basically, do what they tell you, do and observe, but don't do what they do. For what they say, they do not do. They tie up heavy loads, hard to carry, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger. So he's not really supporting the heavy, but you know the traditions of men he's talking about, tradition of the others. It, it doesn't seem to me like he's fully endorsing the, the, all the um the little uh, defense rules and so on that they've created. It doesn't seem to me that he's endorsing that. So I, I think it does go back to that he's only endorsing wherever they speak the word of God, so to speak. He's endorsing that. But not all their traditions, um, because they said all their works they do to be noticed by men. Okay. So looking at these burdens, as he puts it, or... Yeah these loads that he's putting on people. And I want to contrast that by what Yeshua said, because I think that's an important piece of the puzzle of how we approach looking at Yeshua's model, in a sense. And I want to look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 13. Because the Pharisees, which even Yeshua looks at, they had this idea in talking about burdens. They had the, the idea of the yoke of the commandments. And I want to contrast that by what Yeshua's yoke was. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Freddie? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls and verse 30 for my yoke is easy and my burden is light so the first thing I like about this passage is that Yeshua is making an invitation. That's a big piece to park on. Why is he inviting us? Well, can we do it by ourselves? We can try, right? We can try to do it by ourselves. But the good thing about Yeshua's part of the yoke, he's got a lot of strength, so he's going to probably be lifting the heavier side of the yoke. He's going to, and, and there is an implied here, there's going to be some work involved in it. Okay? So I don't want to like make this all like rosy sunglasses. There is work involved with Yeshua. But he's willing to work with us. One of the first things I learned as an employer, and I still treasure it to this day, don't ask your employee to do anything you wouldn't be willing to do. If you're going to tell your employee to mop the floor, to clean the toilet, you better be ready to get in there and do it too. And show that you were just as willing to do all the tough work, the heavy lifting work, that anyone else would do. Anyone else would do. And Yeshua has that attitude of, I'm willing to come alongside and carry this with you, 
and even carry the heavier side. And Yeshua, he describes himself here, what kind of teacher? He's gentle, and he's very patient. Humble. It's an important piece of the picture is this humility. But also he's going to lead us to a place of rest. Rest is a big piece of our life with Yeshua. All these things come about because we work with Yeshua. We work in tandem with Him. We serve with Him together. We can't do anything apart from Him, as we've learned in John, that we are like the vine, and He, uh, he is the vine, and we are the branches, and apart from Him, we can do nothing. And that's the same process that we see at work in the yoke. He's doing the heavy lifting with us. He's walking with us and lifting us, teaching us, as we go through. And many people think he's talking about this same piece, the yoke of the commandments, that he was offering a different yoke than what the scribes and Pharisees were offering. When you read commentary on this verse, that Yeshua is offering his yoke in contrast to what they were doing. And I think it's so important that within us leaders and with any of us that are given authority, we have to look at authority as precious. It's a precious thing that God has given to us, and we shouldn't take it lightly, but we should be willing to get in there and do anything we ask of anyone else. Anything, we, anything we're going to ask someone else, and I think that really applies here at Yeshua Tzion because we talk about we talk about reconciliation, and it's a hard it's a hard line at times that I think some people think we we look at it saying that we have to do it. We have to do it, but as something as leaders, we hold ourselves to that same standard. We will reconcile relationships. We will work things out as God brings us opportunities to work them out. And I just think it's important that in any healthy congregation, that leaders should be humble, that leaders should be willing to do anything they're asking the congregants to do, if not more. And that what we take on as leaders is also a lot more responsibility and a lot more of what God requires. So in the next passage, in verses 5 through 7, we, there's a talk about appearances. And appearances are important. And we should value appearances, but we shouldn't see them as an end-all. And I think that's kind of what's being portrayed here. Because I even, even as a blind person myself, I know that appearance is important. I, I'll even ask my kids, do these clothes look okay? No, there's no, you know, because I've, I've dumped a few cups of coffee on shirts over the years. And I know for a fact that a lot of times those coffee stains don't come out. And the fact is, I'll ask the kids, does this, does this shirt have a stain? Do these pants look okay? You know, and the fact is, appearance is an important piece. But at the same time, it's not where we stay. It's not the end all of who we are. It does matter how we are present ourselves. But at the end of the day, it's not the only thing. Especially if our heart doesn't match up with what we look like on the outside. And part of that picture is us willing to say, willing to be humble, 
willing to make sure people hear our heart, who we are in our heart, and to be transparent. I think that's part of what Yeshua is addressing in these verses 5 through 7 when he's talking about how they look at appearances. Because I don't want to say that appearances aren't important, but they're just not the end all that we strive for. Appearance is not the only thing we try to shine forth. We want to look at what's in our heart, and that has to be on display. And sometimes that means we'll be vulnerable to people and let people into who we are and let people in to know who our, what our heart is like. And I look at how Paul was like this in his letters. He always tried to be exactly who God called him to be. And he, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see an example of Paul saying, this is how I was. So I wanted to read that, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Because if, if we don't have a humble heart in our presentation, if we try to look at things and say, you know, we're better than them, I think we're putting ourselves just as much on, a, on, a, on the same ground of being able to fall and not be truly who we are. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 5 through 9. Who's, who will read that for us? Hadassah? Forget where First Thessalonians was. It's in the New Testament. That's it. Oh, I'm sorry. I should come back to you. Verses 5 through 9. Okay. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover our grief. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. But we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you have become so dear to us. So Paul kind of shows a tender side here in his passage of trying to say, we weren't trying to be something we weren't, kind of fitting in with the context of not trying to put on a mask or try to, try to get you to listen to us by flattery. But we wanted to be who we were. And part of the thing that we talk about is we all have to see ourselves, we're fellow strugglers, all working together on the same path, working toward the same goals. And a lot of times 
It's not just leaders that put themselves up, but it's also what people expect of leaders. That leaders are to be so much up there above the rest of us. But leaders are humans too. They, they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like anyone else. And they do the things that anyone else does, that we have to look at them in the same light of being humble. But most importantly, leaders at times need to show their hearts of who they are and being just honest about who they are. And it's like, I know it's a difficult place to be because a lot of times people don't want to be vulnerable because they've been stepped on or people try to fix them later or all the different issues that come up. But the fact is God wants even this part of our lives to be under his redemption. To be part of the redemption package of what God wants to work in us, not to look at ourselves and say, uh, well, I don't do that. I don't do that. I'm not, I'm not going to be who I am in front of these people because I was there before and they hurt me when I was that way. Or I'm going to be different because I'm, I'm better than they are. I've studied and I've gotten my PhD. And this is part of the issue that I think doesn't come across in the Pharisees. Part of one of the big problems that the Pharisees had was they saw themselves better as the common people. They saw themselves more devoted and more pursuant to the Torah than the average Joe. And I think that's part of what Yeshua is addressing here when he says they want to be called rabbi. They want to have the place, the great seat at banquets, and the, and the, the recognition in public, and to be looked at in this way and in that way. And I want to say it's, it's a two-way street at times. Sometimes we have to also see the, that it's us that does it as leaders. Sometimes it's people that put a big expectation and want to blow our head up. And I always try to have an attitude of, to God be all the glory. Amen. God gets all the glory for what takes place in my life, both good and bad. And that's part of being who we are as humbly as we are as leaders. So to kind of finish up here in the next portion, in verses 8 through 10, we have the, the picture of leaders. Don't call leaders rabbi or father or leader. I think we're, running. we're running out of time? Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm a little probably off. We can resume from there. Um, my time has not been as accurate, but we can close it at that point. And Rabbi Haim, I'll let you close us in prayer. Lord, uh, thank you that you know how complex some of these things are. And uh, we uh, fall into one ditch or another on the issue of authority. We're either too trusting or else we're too rebellious. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to view everything uh, in this regard of authority, Lord, uh, from how you view it. And, Lord God, that in all circumstances that we would live our lives uh, according to your order and that we would learn to be patient and, and learn to persevere and uh, receive the blessings you have for us, Lord, in tough circumstances. We pray, Lord, for your 
perfection on the road as we head our separate ways. And we ask that you would receive all the honor and glory in our life. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.